patience. Let's begin in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. We are about to wrap up Second Samuel. Pardon me while I get back to Second Samuel. And then as we finish Second Samuel, we're simply going to go into First uh, Kings. Now, I am sorry, we started a little bit late, and I'm going to have to leave a little bit early due to an appointment. So maybe we will make it as our goal simply to finish, uh, finish Samuel today, um, if we can get that far. I don't know. That may be optimistic. Of course, what, what, has, what has taken place as the text is wrapping up, we really have, uh, in many respects, the last acts of David recorded in Scripture that are taking place here. In chapter 21, and we talked about this at length, you have this, uh, to our ears, to our modern Western sensibilities, very strange and difficult section of Scripture, where, of course, um, some of seven of Saul's sons uh, die on account of his, that is, Saul's sins. We talked about that theme that has come up from time to time in Samuel, the death of an innocent to make atonement for the sins of the guilty. The two that stand out is chapter 21, of which we just spoke, and of course, the, the love child between David and Bathsheba, that innocent child dies for the sins of uh, the father. So, uh, in these, we're pointed forward in a strange way to Christ. There have been lots and lots of positive, straightforward, not too strange ways in which First uh, and Second Samuel have pointed us to Jesus. There have also been kind of negative, by contrast, strange and quirky ways in which the text has pointed us to Jesus. And um, this, is, this is one of those. Another one that comes to mind classically is how Absalom, who in this text, in history, in this text, is clearly an enemy, clearly a rebel son of David. And yet, uh, in many respects, his death resembles that death of Christ, doesn't it? Where... Um, he's hung from a tree. Christ, is hung, Christ, the son of David, is hung from a tree. His hair is tangled in the tree. Christ's hair is tangled in the thorns, uh, etc. We, t- we spoke about this. His, his heart is pierced. Christ's heart is pierced. So uh, uncanny, strange, bizarre ways, unexpected ways in which these texts have uh, preached and proclaimed Christ to us as well. After the sacrifice is completed... Um, This is what we covered through verse 14 of chapter 21. God brings back rain uh, upon the land. The famine is over. The people are able to eat. And we simply transition then to another section, chapter 21, verse 15. There was war again between the Philistines and Israel. And David went down together with his servants, and they fought against the Philistines. And David grew weary. And Ishbi Benab, one of the descendants of the giants, interesting how we're coming full circle here, isn't it? In terms of David's 
ascent into greatness, which began with his uh, battle against the giant Goliath. And now here at the end, we have David once again against the Philistines and against uh, <laughs> an offspring or descendant of the giant. So Ishbi Benab, one of the descendants of the giants, whose spear weighed 300 shekels of bronze. The last description given akin to this was that of Goliath and who was armed with a new sword, thought to kill David. But Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, came to his aid and attacked the Philistine and killed him. Then David's men swore to him, You shall no longer go out with us to battle, lest you quench the lamp of Israel. Which is uh, a way of saying you're too old to fight anymore. Like, that's it. You should retire. And, uh, you know, and indeed he should. He would have died. So David, who conquered the giant, um, now uh, you know, clearly would have been conquered by the giant had he not been spared by Abishai. And so uh, this, is, uh, this brings the whole arc of David's character full circle in terms of the literary structure of this text. Verse 18, after this, there was again war with the Philistines at Gob. Then Sibike the... Hishathite, Hushathite, struck down Saph, who was one of the descendants of the giants. And there was again war with the Philistines at Gob, and Elhanan, the son of Jerah Oregim, and, uh, excuse me, Jerah Oregim, the Bethlehemite, struck down Goliath, the Gittite, the shaft of whose spear was like a weaver's beam. And there was again war at Gath, where there was a man of great stature who had six fingers on each hand and six toes on each foot, 24 in number. And he also was descended from the giants. And when he taunted Israel, Jonathan, the son of Shemai, David's brother, struck him down. These four were descended from the giants of Gath, and they fell by the hand of David and by the hand of his servants." And it's, it's kind of interesting because you have David conquering the original giant and then you have the descendants of these giants and, in some respects, the descendants of David and they're doing battle and they're conquering the giants. I can't help, perhaps this is a little bit too weak of an analogy, but it reminds me just a touch of how Christ defeats the Goliath of hell, defeats Satan on the cross, and then um, the church throughout the book of Acts and continuing on uh, fights the descendants of the giant, the descendants of Satan, and conquers them as well by the strength of Christ. And so anyway, you have a, whether you like that take or not, you have nonetheless in this text a sort of passing on of the torch, if you will. And, uh, the, and the continued success of the household of David. All right, now we move on to David's song of deliverance. I've mentioned to you many times before that first and second Samuel, there really was no such thing originally. There was just one text. This, in many respects, then takes us all the way back to chapter 2, where you have Hannah's prayer. Do you remember Hannah's prayer? So similar to the Magnificat, uh, but Hannah's prayer really is the poetic piece that begins uh, the Samuel narrative. And here you have its ending, David's song of deliverance, 2 Samuel chapter 22. 
And David spoke to the Lord's words of this song on the day when the Lord delivered him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. He said, The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock, in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold and my refuge, my Savior, you save me from violence. I call upon the Lord, who is worthy to be praised, and I am saved from my enemies. Beautiful, beautiful poetry there. Um, David here giving all of his military successes to God as God's glory, as God's gift done in and through him. Uh, similarly, calling God explicitly his Savior, his rock, the one in whom he takes refuge, and I love that imagery, the one to whom you flee for help. Verse 5, For the waves of death encompassed me, the torrents of destruction assailed me, the cords of shale entangled me, the snares of death confronted me. Ah, now this is interesting. Because it's at this position that two different things begin to happen. When you're talking about the waves and the torrents, in terms of Israel's Old Testament history, again, in terms of what would be the crucifixion and resurrection of the Old Testament, what would be the salvific event, what comes to your mind? The rescue from Egypt and the Red Sea crossing. So there are flavors of that here. But the emphasis, while we're talking about waves and torrents, so there's a water motif going on, the meditation is on death and shale. And so here the second aspect comes out, and you can see how David is speaking. David, the anointed one, the Messiah, the Christ, um, that's what it means to be uh, anoint, the anointed one, um, really speaks in such a way that this is ultimately fulfilled. Of course, we can see how it's fulfilled in David's own life, but it's ultimately fulfilled in Christ. That's the other thing that happens. And so you see this convergence of the salvation in the Old Testament of God's people through the Exodus and through the water and the salvation of God's New Testament people through the cross of Christ. You see these things converging, and it's, it's that convergence that really undergirds the, the idea of Christian baptism and why baptism was so central as a washing away of sin and, the, and death and the devil and a, a lavish flood by which we are saved, this, this flood that flows from Jesus' pierced side. All right, but we're getting a little ahead of ourselves. Simply at verse 5 and 6, it already becomes uh, to our ears explicitly about more than David. For the waves of death encompassed me, the torrents of destruction assailed me, the cords of shale entangled me, the snares of death confronted me. Now, if we go back and we, and we realize, okay, well, this, this then has, has a Christological theme. This is as much or more about Jesus than it is about David. Then, then let's go back and see if these words in verse 2 and following uh, would, fit, would fit if they were prayed by the, our Lord Jesus. 
Could Jesus pray the Lord, his Father? Is his rock my fortress, my deliverer? My God, my rock, in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold and my refuge, my Savior, you save me from violence. I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised. I am saved from my enemies. Is that not exactly the death and resurrection? The death and resurrection. Um, For the waves of death encompassed me. The torrents of destruction assailed me. The cords of shale entangled me. The snares of death confronted me. It's just like Jesus bound on the cross. Um, praying and crying out and trusting that God will indeed raise him from the dead. Verse 7, In my distress I called upon the Lord, to my God I called. So we hear here, we can hear now the voice of David, which is our voice, and a sinful voice. We can kind of understand on that level. We can also hear the voice of Jesus, a more transcendent voice, a voice that in and of itself is without sin, and yet he bears our sin. We can hear these two voices. And this is really important, by the way. I'm sure you've discovered this for yourself as you read and pray the Psalms. It's much the same way. You, read, you realize that you're reading and praying them in and through Christ, and there's parts that certainly pertain to us, and um, there's many more parts, and maybe in a more transcendent way, they all have to do with Christ and, and our Christ pr- praying to the Father. So... Um, as, one, as one theologian put it, when you pray the Psalms, you're being caught up into the, the speech of the triune God between the Father and the Son. And some, it's quite evident because uh, as the psalmist is praying, then God responds. It's as if Christ the Son is praying and the Father is responding. And we being brought up in Christ and Christ sharing in our sins and we sharing in, in, our, in His righteousness... Um, these psalms take on just such a rich depth and profundity as you pray them in this respect. So we in many ways are, are simply looking at uh, David's song at the end of 2 Samuel in the same way. Verse 8. Oh, wait, no, I'm sorry. Uh, end of verse 7, so we better just do verse 7. In my distress I called upon the Lord, to my God I called. From his temple he heard my voice. And my cry came to his ears. It's just such fascinating language because at the time of David, the temple proper has not been constructed. And at the time of Christ, from his temple he heard my voice. It's very much the temple of his body. He heard my voice and my cry came to his ears. Then the earth reeled and rocked. The foundations of the heavens trembled and quaked because he was angry. Remember upon Christ's death what occurs? Huge earthquake. Smoke went up from his nostrils and devouring fire from his mouth. Glowing coals flamed forth from him. He bowed the heavens and came down. Thick darkness was under his feet. This is so great. He rode on a cherub and flew. <laughs> now, if your vision of a, of, of a cherub is one of those like chubby little Christmas angels with a trumpet, <laughs> then this, <laughs> this doesn't quite work. <laughs> the imagery doesn't quite work. Um, n- neither does it work, really, really. If, I mean, it's quite comical if you picture a cherub in some sort of humanoid form. 
I mean, what would that look like? That would look like what my son does. He always jumps on my back and rides around the house, you know, like with his sword as if I'm, you know, it'd look quite ridiculous. Yahweh is not on, you know, this small creature attached to this larger humanoid creature. So, so what do we make, how do we make sense of this? Well, truth be told, the imagery of uh, cherubim, plural, or a cherub, singular, is frequently a four-legged creature. Not always, but frequently a four-legged creature. Um, sometimes depicted as winged lions or lions with human heads, lion body, human heads, or lion heads, horse-type bodies, uh, wing, wings out. Uh, an actual, looks more like a beast, a four-legged creature that you could ride upon. That is almost certainly the imagery here. Um, I mean, it's, it's not in any way sense even overlapping, other than it'll just give you an idea. But when you're driving up the five, there's like some giant uh, furniture store or carpet store or something. And it actually has these four-legged creatures up. Uh, do you know what I'm talking about? Have any of you seen this? And I think it's got, I think they have humanoid heads. They're wearing hats and they've got these long beards. But what's that? The Citadel, is that what it's called? That sounds, that sounds right, yeah. So you can Google it and look it up. But, but that's kind of the genre. Or you can think of... Um, Ah, uh, remember how the pharaohs are sometimes depicted as having four legs and a pharaoh's head, you know, like maybe even being part lion or something like that. It's, it's, this is kind of the artistic genre we're in, very, very loosely and generally speaking, okay? Now, I mean, this is very strange because you stop and you think to yourself, well, when, when in the narrative, when in the Bible did David ever experience something like this? You, know, and you don't really have an answer. And then if you ask yourself, well, this is primarily about Christ. When in the Bible, when, when in the narrative of the Gospels, does Christ explicitly experience anything like this? And there's not really an answer. Um, probably, probably the best way to think about this is to think about this in terms of how Jesus himself preaches both the cross and the end times. And what he does is he blurs the imagery together. In fact, what Jesus frequently does at the end of his Gospels is he blurges... It, Blurges. <laughs> How do you like that for a word? <laughs> he blurs. He blurs three images together, um, and this is really confusing to us sometimes as as Western Christians trying to figure out what's what. But he takes his own crucifixion, he ta- and that imagery, and he takes the destruction of Jerusalem in the year seventy A.D. that he foretells. He takes that imagery. And he takes the imagery, the, the um, eschatological imagery of the end of the world. And he blurs these together as if they were one and speaks of them fluidly, almost as if they were one event. When we studied the Minor Prophets, we saw this, how they took two images together, namely the coming of the Messiah and the end of the world, and they blurred those together into one. So why, why this blurring together? Well, there's actually profound theological wisdom to be ascertained here if you're willing to just take Jesus at his word and think in these terms, um, or the minor prophets as well, of course. But, but the idea there is that the judgment of Jesus on the cross, the judgment of the Jewish people who rejected him in 70 AD, and the judgment of the world at the end of time are all effectively, functionally the same thing. They're all so intimately connected, it would be better to see them as one whole, it would be more accurate to see them as one whole reality than it would be to see them as three historically disconnected events. 
How so? On the cross, Jesus is crucified for the sins of the whole world. And in him and him alone are we saved from the wrath of God. Apart from Christ, the wrath of God is coming. The Jewish people rejected Christ, so the wrath of God comes upon them. The destruction of Jerusalem in 70 becomes a microcosm of the destruction of the world at the, at the end of time. God's wrath at the end of the world only falls upon those who reject Christ, only, only upon those who are outside of Christ, you see. So these, these three who aren't covered by his death... So these three events, the cross, the destruction of Jerusalem, and the end of the world, uh, rightfully, rightfully, are really all one theological reality. So then back to our text, back to our text. If you think of this in terms of Christ and meditating on Christ and his death, then you see the death and the coming of God to set all things right as two sides of the same coin. So on one moment, it saved me from death. That's like Good Friday. There's the resurrection, of course, sort of implied. And then there's the coming down of God to execute justice and righteousness, to vindicate Christ and those who have believed in him. All right? So that would, that would be a way of making sense of this text. But anyway, it's <laughs> however you understand it, I think maybe even less important than trying to understand it, quote-unquote, wrap our minds around it, comprehend it, would be to just enjoy it. This is wild. This is incredible. When you're reading through the scriptures, it's not often you run into a section quite so vivid. Verse 8, the earth reeled and rocked. The foundations of the heavens trembled and quaked because he was angry, which also, again, strictly speaking, takes you outside of the realm of what's visible and takes you into the realm of what's invisible. Not only is earth shaking, but the heavens are shaking. The foundations of the heavens trembled and quaked because he was angry. Smoke went up from his nostrils and devouring fire from his mouth. If you just had that completely out of context, it's almost like a dragon. Smoke from his nostrils, devouring fire from his mouth. I mean, here's where, here's where God becomes the dragon against the dragon. Here's where God is the devil's devil. Here's where God is the death of death and the terror of terror and the sin of sin and all this really delicious language and imagery that Luther liked to use so poignantly. Yeah. Jesus is the snake that devours the snake. You remember Aaron's rod, how it, how it turns into a snake? And Jesus is the snake that devours the snake, the dragon that eats the dragon. It's just great, 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 great imagery. So, smoke went up from his nostrils, devouring fire from his mouth. Glowing coals flamed forth from him. He bowed the heavens and came down, which is such a strange but poignant use of language, isn't it? I mean, in my mind, this is silly, of course, but in my mind it evokes, you know, when you look at the horizon or you kind of look at the sky and your mind produces this like artificial separation of, you know, here's the heavens and here's the earth. And you just suddenly see like the clouds and every, the sky just bow down and God's coming out of it in full power. It's like, you know, even the, even the creation around him is quailing and bending to his awesome strength. It's just such great imagery. He bowed the heavens and came down. 
I think you can understand this in the way that, um, if I'm not mistaken, Luther, perhaps some of the earlier church fathers understood. You know, they understand this kind of in the language of humbled the heavens and came down. They they see hints here of the incarnation, which is a, you know adds just another wrinkle and layer to think about. He bowed the heavens and came down. Thick darkness was under his feet. You know, in this context, almost like a thundercloud or something, but thick darkness under his feet. He rode on a cherub and flew. He was seen on the wings of the wind. I mean, this is God flying around. This is awesome. So incredible. He made darkness around him his canopy. I love this. Thick clouds and a gathering of water. This is evocative, of course, of Luther's idea of the hidden God and the Deus Absconditus, that kind of thing. Although I, I don't know. Your mileage may vary. What I, what I like about this, what I like about this, is pondering the, there's a more complex relationship. Of course, of course. The scriptures say um, he is the father of lights and in him is no variation or shadow of turning. Or in him there is no darkness at all. He's pure light. But what are, those, what are those scriptures trying to evoke? Those scriptures are trying to evoke and communicate this idea of his pure goodness. That he's, he's not defilable or corrupt or sinful in any way. He's just pure good. So where you have those scriptures, and it is the dominant motif and way of speaking about God as being light and pure light and having nothing at all to do with darkness. It's talking about his goodness, his purity, that kind of thing. But there are a curious minority of scriptures that actually talk about the darkness or the dark aspects of God. And here is probably uh, one of the major ones. And it's, it's fascinating because what is, what is the darkness imagery meant to evoke or communicate here? Um, a, a grave distinction between creature and creator. Impenetrable, unknowable, transcendent, terrifying, mysterious. And in that sense, it, how beautiful to communicate those ideas with him being surrounded uh, with darkness. Surrounded with darkness. It's one of my favorite images of God. Pure light and yet surrounded in darkness. Again, he made darkness around him his canopy. Just that language sort of evokes the imagery of clouds and then becomes explicit in the next line. Thick clouds, a gathering of water. And there we see the connection again with water back in verse 5. Waves and torrents. The themes of water uh, in terms of the looking backwards to the Red Sea, forwards to baptism, all the way back to the flood all the way back to the creation of the heavens and the new earth, or the heavens and the earth, and by these things we are reminded of the creation of the new heavens and the new earth that is to come. The flood that will wash away all evil from the world on the last day, the flood of God's wrath, the flood of baptism by which uh, we, like Noah, are saved, etc. Um, the flood that wiped away the enemies of God's people and meant the birth of Israel. Same floods come with God when he comes in vengeance so that the floods uh, wash away not, not Egypt but the worldly and wicked unbelievers and thus then constitutes the beginning of a new people of God, Israel's climactic fulfillment as the bride of the Lamb. 
All right, so all of that is just tucked so nicely, so beautifully in here. He made darkness around him his canopy, verse 12, thick clouds, a gathering of water. Out of the brightness before him, just look at the complex use of light and dark, coals of fire flamed forth. The Lord thundered from heaven, and the Most High uttered his voice, and he sent out arrows and scattered them, lightning and routed them. So the traditional battle imagery, again melding with nature, such that the arrows are in all likelihood lightning coming down, routing the enemies of the Messiah, of the Anointed One, David, and more, Christ. And then, once more, this flood, uh, or excuse me, this Red Sea motif, I suppose the flood's somewhat in there, but the Red Sea motif, more in view. Then the channels of the sea were seen. Very reminiscent of how the, when the sea is open, the channels are, are seen. There's dry ground for God's people. Then the channels of the sea were seen. The foundations of the world were laid bare at the rebuke of the Lord, at the blast of the breath of his nostrils. And it's that imagery that's used earlier in the scriptures for the opening of the Red Sea, at the blast of his nostrils, the sea opened. You can see, too, why Christ standing on the Mount of Transfiguration with Moses and Elijah talks about his exodus. And you could see, like, man, if he were referring to this text alone, it would be enough. <laughs> this is what the, the final exodus, so to speak, looks like in very poetic, picturesque language. He sent from on high, verse 17, he took me. He drew me out of many waters. He rescued me from my strong enemy, from those who hated me, for they were too mighty for me. Isn't that the beautiful, wonderful deliverance of God, not only for David, but for all of us? Just gorgeous. I mean, here, my strong enemy, those who hated me, satanic references. The waters here being waters that they are using to put me to death. Reminiscent of that imagery in Revelation 12 where the dragon uh, is attacking the offspring of the woman and he does so with the flood of water from his mouth. Verse 19, they confronted me in the day of my calamity, but the Lord was my support. I mean, in terms of the narrative that's gone before, probably, probably you direct that toward Absalom and David in his weakness being confronted in his calamity and his own sinfulness that led to that and his own inaction that led to that and the embarrassment and calamity for his family, etc. But the Lord was my support, he says. He brought me out into a broad place. He rescued me because he delighted in me. 
And I know I'm doing this fluid back and forth, but I hope that, I, I mean, I think that this is just how we Christians in general read these texts and read the Psalms. I mean, what is at one moment about us as fallen human beings in a world on, is in the next moment about Christ. And there's this, this beautiful dance and poetry that takes place. That's, and that's how these last words strike me. Um, he brought me out into a broad place. He rescued me because he delighted in me. Do you remember the, the taunt against Christ? Um, I think it's right out of Psalm 22, which Christ was saying. I could be mistaken on that. If somebody knows better, let me know. But the taunt that the religious leaders take upon their lips as he's hanging on the cross is, um, let God deliver him if he delights in him. That is, if God delights in Jesus, let him deliver him. Um, so it's a taunt. Well, of course, God does deliver him three days later. And so God does indeed delight in him. With that as the backdrop, <laughs> Or at least with that data, now, now take a look at these lines. It's just so beautiful. He brought me out into a broad place. He rescued me because he delighted in me. So he did indeed delight in me. They taunted me that he did not. I trusted in him, and he did. And so I'm risen. And then by extension, of course, we rise with Christ. So there's, not to make an artificial distinction here between Christ and David, Christ and all of us, Christ and the believer. What happens to Christ happens to us. That's what Romans 6 teaches. We're so united with him through baptism. We're buried with him in a death like his. We're raised with him in a resurrection like his. As it goes for Christ, so it goes for us. Romans 6. Okay, verse 21. The Lord dealt with me according to my righteousness. Now, if David says that, what does that mean? I mean, perhaps faith, sure. Sure, that's definitely there. Might even be foundational. Righteousness would mean upright dealings. David didn't deal treacherously with people. It's not a claim to sinlessness. It is a claim to operating in good faith, not repaying other people's good with evil. Um, in fact, when other people did evil to him, very frequently David was merciful and good to them. And so that's really what I think constitutes righteousness here in terms of David's understanding. And in many of the Psalms, it's much the same way. Um, there's this claim towards righteousness. The Lord dealt with me according to my righteousness. It's not a claim to sinlessness, but it is a claim to dealing uh, with, the, with enemies in an upright way. Yeah, like in Job. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly right. Job would be a great example. So, next clause, according to the cleanness of my hands, he rewarded me. Now, these lines, when we put them into the lips of Jesus, mean something altogether more profound and more rich, don't they? The Lord dealt with me according to my righteousness for Christ. That is perfect sinlessness. So he raises him from the dead, right? According to the cleanness of my hands, he rewarded me. This is, this is one of the many places, by the way, that the Old Testament scriptures speak very plainly of the death and resurrection of Jesus. If you remember St. Paul, if, you, if you've been with us in our Christology book, St. Paul refers to the death and resurrection of Jesus as being taught in the scriptures. At the point in time in which Paul's writing that, there are only the Old Testament scriptures. So Paul's assertion is, look, the death and resurrection were taught all throughout the Hebrew scriptures. And I would point to, I mean, if someone asked me to demonstrate that, this would be one of many places that I would point and say, look, there's death and salvation from death. 
There's death and resurrection. So, yeah, put these words in Christ's lips and they find their fullest meaning and fullest expression, far more than David or any other sinner praying them. The Lord dealt with me according to my righteousness, says Jesus, the Christ, the, the anointed, the shepherd king. According to the cleanness of my hands, he rewarded me. For I have kept the ways of the Lord and have not wickedly departed from my God. For all his rules were before me, and from his statutes I did not turn aside. I was blameless before him, and I kept myself from guilt. Again, it's just very interesting that David can pen these words. One of two things is, is true. David is either expressly and only speaking in the future tense of Christ, or David is saying effectively, hey, I operated in good faith as one who is faithful to Yahweh. Now, those are kind of your, your interpretive options there. Of course, to put this in the lips of Christ fully, we can do that theologically. We don't necessarily escape the exegetical question. In what sense does David himself mean this? But in the lips of Christ, they're just pure beauty. No controversy whatsoever. All of God's rules were before Christ, and he did them. From his statutes, I did not turn aside. Remember how, how in the Gospel of John, Christ says, I came not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. I was blameless before him. I kept myself from guilt. Indeed, Jesus alone has done that in the perfect and fullest sense of those words. And the Lord has rewarded me according to my righteousness, according to my cleanness in his sight. And here, this next line, this is very, very stereotypical David. You see this over and over in David's Psalms. Uh, this claim, on the one hand, to being righteous and blameless, and then this claim, on the other hand, to being a recipient of God's mercy. And again, it's very, very interesting, thought-provoking, and worthwhile, particularly for us as Lutherans, I think, to meditate on these things. Um, of course, they make their fullest sense in Christ. Nobody's denying that. But David still, as a man, had to pen these words, as a sinner had to pen these words. And it is fascinating that over and over again, he both claims righteousness and claims to need mercy. And certainly there's an aspect there of the righteousness of faith. Certainly that's there. But it is interesting. It is interesting that David doesn't make explicit reference to faith. So this, these, uh, these verses invite, invite us to ponder, invite us to consider deeply. Well, verse 26 then, With the merciful you show yourself merciful. That's almost like the beatitude, isn't it? With the blameless man, you show yourself blameless. And see, there that helps us because that takes on, blameless doesn't mean like, hey, you couldn't point out a sin. Blameless means um, 
you've conducted yourself rightly. And so God conducts himself rightly, blamelessly towards you. Blameless is something, I think I've become more and more convinced that blameless biblically is something more like good faith in most contexts. You know, we have this concept of are you operating in good faith or not? Are you, are you trying to pull one over on somebody or are you being honest, right? Um, and and I, increasingly, I think that that's, at least in many places in the scriptures, that seems to be much more the sense of blamelessness. It seems to be more of a, a social kind of term. Um, generally speaking, upright, good faith, not intentionally deceiving or harming anyone. Um, so anyway, uh, with the blameless man, you show yourself blameless. I love this. Not with the pure you deal purely, but with the purified you deal purely. There's an important distinction. But this too, reminiscent of the... Uh, of the Beatitudes. Blessed are the pure in heart. And if you read those two together, then it would be the purified in heart. With the purified, you deal purely. With the crooked, you make yourself seem torturous. <sighs> it's not good. That's part of when we're wrestling with God and, and when he seems torturous to us, which as sinners in this late stage of the earth is maybe more frequent than we'd like to admit, it's always opportunity to confess our sins. It's always opportunity to reflect on, on how crooked we have been and how crooked our own thinking has been. Well, this is beautiful, and I've ruined the poetry. 26. With the merciful, you show yourself merciful. With the blameless man, you show yourself blameless. With the purified, you deal purely. And with the crooked, you make yourself seem torturous. Just gorgeous. Just fantastic lines. 28. You save a humble people, but your eyes are on the haughty to bring them down. Now, that, now, 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 we're back in the themes of Hannah's prayer that began this gigantic saga all the way back in 1 Samuel, where, where the theme, not unlike the Magnificat, is God exalting the lowly and casting down the proud. And so you have that same theme here coming out overtly. The humble people are saved. Boy, that too, remnant. gosh, I just hadn't even thought of that. How, how much this section resonates with uh, the Sermon on the Mount and the, and the um, Beatitudes. Because here you have the humble, very much like the meek of the Beatitudes. Even the poor in spirit. Well, you save the humble people. The humble are exalted, but your eyes are on the haughty to bring them down. The exalted are cast down. The mighty are cast down. For you are my lamp, O Lord, and my God lightens my darkness. So we're used to that, and we're used to um, thinking of that. It's, it is interesting to put, to put the darkness of Good Friday and consider this prayer on, on Christ's lips as the, as the supernatural darkness is surrounding him from noon to three, and he's praying to his Father, you are the one who lightens my darkness. Verse 34, by you I can run against a troop, and by my God I can leap over a wall. 
this God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord proves true. He is a shield for all those who take refuge in him. Beautiful language for Christ and for us. For who is God but the Lord? Oh no, that's my alarm telling me I've got to go. Not, don't even stand a chance to get through this. I am so sorry. We're going to have to break there. But I guess I'm not that sorry because we would have to break prematurely anyway. So here's your homework should you choose to accept it. Just go read this, this whole song of David in its entirety and meditate on it. And we'll, uh, we'll finish the second half next week. It is wonderful and beautiful. Time well spent. The Lord be with you. Also with you.